This episode of AHLA Speaking of Health Law is brought to you by AHLA members and donors like you. For more information, visit AmericanHealthLaw.org. Thank you, everyone, for joining uh, this next uh, episode of our C-Suite podcast series. Uh, Our first podcast was with different strategic planning officers as they looked at industry trends and where they saw work going within hospitals, health systems, and health plans. Today, we are lucky enough to be joined by three talented individuals in the information technology space as we continue to look at its effect on the healthcare industry. I'm Rob Gerberry. I am currently a board member of the American Health Law Association. I want to thank our hospitals and health systems practice group, and then also introduce my co-moderator today, the former chair of the hospitals and health systems practice group, Emily Gray. From there, I'm going to introduce our three presenters for today. First, we have Dr. Mike Heider. Mike is a, uh, currently a consultant, and his past roles has been a chief medical officer, a chief medical information officer, and has really helped organizations to focus on advancing their population health strategy through digital technology and analytics enablement. Our next presenter is Haroon Rashid. Haroon is the vice president of information systems and the chief information officer at Akron Children's Hospital. And finally, Tanya Arthur. Tanya is the vice president uh, and chief information officer at Blue Cross and Blue Shield of Kansas City and my former colleague uh, at Summa Health Systems. So we wanna thank each of our presenters for joining us today and participating in this podcast. With that, I'm gonna turn it over to Emily to kick us off. Yes, thanks so much, Rob. Um, So since we are talking this time with our chief information officers, I thought it would first be helpful um, to hear more about how the CIOs in your role uh, play in helping health systems and health plans execute their strategic plans. As outside counsel, I don't always have as much insight uh, as those who work in-house like Rob do. So I was hoping you could tell us a little bit about your role and also what industry trends you've been seeing as we come through the pandemic. Um, And why don't we get that started with Tanya who can give us some insights there. Yes, absolutely. Thank you. Thank you, Emily. Um, I'll tell you, a lot has changed over the last, I would say, 18 to 24 months. I think uh, from a chief information officer perspective, we've always in healthcare really been focused on the quadruple aim and really looking to improve experience, really lower the cost of healthcare and and facilitate uh, health and wellness um, across populations and with with individuals. Uh, With the pandemic increasing, uh, the pandemic uh, happening, that has only accelerated. So we've, we've seen a lot of challenges with um, increasing case mix, which, you know, the severity of illness, the severity of illness with uh, the pandemic itself. And we continue to focus on, um, we continue to focus on uh, accelerating health outcomes and reducing, reducing the cost of care. And really uh, health systems as well, both on the payer and provider side are looking to uh, technology to help Uh, accelerate capabilities in that space, whether it be virtual health, whether it be through automation or leveraging data, uh, those are the areas that we really um, place our our efforts. In addition to that, it's been, it's from an industry perspective and with the proliferation of data, um, security risk has uh, only been elevated uh, in, in our industry. And we see a lot more sophisticated attacks and attacks from you know, all parts of the globe, um, particularly targeting healthcare and healthcare information. Thank you so much, Tanya. Um, Mike, do you have anything to add to that? Do you have a little bit of a different role coming from your perspective and consulting and with a physician background? as opposed to what Tanya sees with the plans. Yeah, no, thank you, Emily uh, and Rob, for asking for inviting me today. Um, yeah, I do, and I'm, I'm really synergistic to the role that the CIO plays within the organization, especially when we're talking about a integrated delivery network or a payer. But in the healthcare world, um, you know, often, as, as Tanya said, it's really critical to 
make sure we understand what our true north is, regardless of what's happening in the world. And of course, the pandemic has really created quite a bit of disruption to healthcare operations. But at the end of the day, it's about health and wellness and making sure that um, we translate that, uh, those sort of lofty goals of, of high quality at, at, at low cost and high satisfaction into specific deliverables, clinical deliverables, clinical outcomes at the disease level, working with our clinicians to then be able to come up with a capabilities roadmap in order to execute. When I say capabilities roadmap, it's what are the technology capabilities required in order to deliver on those health outcomes? Um, and, and then based on that, kind of working with IT to then say, okay, here's what's needed uh, from a technology perspective to deliver on the outcomes versus coming to the health system, coming to the, uh, to the, to the clinicians with, with tools to say, we have this type of tool or that type of tool or this type of system. Um, so that we have, we have you know, clarity around cause and effect uh, when it comes to our technology assets. And uh, I think that's how folks like myself who sort of play these, what I call an IT broker role, really brokering between the clinical world and the technology world, it's sort of that Rosetta Stone. It's, it's really being able to sort of link the clinical initiatives to the technology capabilities. And then smart folks like Tanya and Harun go off and figure out how to execute on those technology capabilities. Mm -hmm. And that's, that's really how organizations truly execute on their strategic plans when they think in that type of a perspective. Thank you, Mike. And Haroon, um, do you have anything to add a little bit you know, of a different uh, part to your role and what are you seeing through the pandemic? Yeah, thank you again for the opportunity. I, I think Tanya and Mike both have uh, eloquently commented on what are CIOs doing and helping health systems and, and execute plan. I mean, similar to it, and I, you know, I mean, similar to what Tanya said, you know, we're very focused on safety and quality. That is our number one initiative. We're focused on research. We're focused on academic support, you know, because we have to grow that program. And, and also innovation. You're seeing more and more healthcare organizations really, you know, playing a lot of emphasis in innovation as a, as a uh, rule of thumb to be able to deliver new ways of doing things in medicine to take care of the patient, you know, and then of course, true not objectives. All of us have strategic objectives that are uh, big and bold that we need to focus on and they all fall in that category. But I think what we've seen through the pandemic uh, and the trend is that consumers have increasingly uh, are prioritizing digital health and digital tools as in as and they want convenient technology based on their to help them with their patient experience it needs to be seamless you know and it needs to be prepared for the shift so we, we in healthcare are still working to shift to meet that they're so accustomed to having uh, a, in a digital uh, med media or digital uh, availability in all other industries, whether it's banking or whether it's uh, airline and all, we're not there yet. We're still, you know, bricks and mortars and paper centric. And, and what the what the COVID has done or post pandemic has shown us that we need to start thinking differently and we need to shift our cultures and systems to meet the patient where they are and not where we want them. You know, they're more interested in digital health ever than they have been because they want to take more ownership. I mean, Today, people can get kits for COVID at their home and do self-testing and, and they're doing all the self-diagnosis and management. So this, go, this growth in the digital shift and, and through the pandemic has demonstrated to healthcare that we have to create a bridge to gap uh, and invest in that digital to drive for patient satisfaction. Telehealth, I know we're going to talk about that, is a classic example of how COVID has propelled that 10 years forward to be able to create that experience and, and improve uh, the uh, patient engagement and outcome by allowing us to connect with them uh, through digital mechanism, all because of pandemic. So there has been some great things that has come through, and, and these are all part of our strategic objectives in the organization to care for our patients. So Haroon, building on, on your comments about digital health, at the beginning of the pandemic, we transitioned and accelerated the telehealth model as we were trying to keep patients you know, out of our uh, facilities. 
as the pandemic has evolved and we're facing now staffing shortages and we're looking at novel ways to monitor patients remotely and to take care of a patient at home, what is your strategy to implement those capabilities? And what do you think the timeline is to really build out those capabilities to see patients in a different way? Well, in many cases, if I were, if you were to ask my organization what the timeline is, they, they would tell you that was a year ago, right? Because we needed <laughs> systems. Uh, actually, uh, in my opinion, uh, I was doing this in 2009 at a very large organization in UPMC. And at that time, the adoption rates were not very high because people still believe that patient wants to come, patients want to come into the hospital. They want to interact with the human uh, side of it. You know, they like that, but that's not quite true. I mean, there are Telehealth is not for every every services. Telehealth are for specific services that can augment. It's just another tool to our provider to engage in care delivery. You know, there's still, it's never going to replace the face-to-face interaction, but telehealth brings a high-tech environment into our patient population. So what the pandemic has shown for all organizations, and we were prepared for it, we had telehealth already invested, and our telehealth exploded by hundreds of percentage, you know, when COVID came into play. And it made a believer, a lot of people, our clinicians and all, that we can do this, we can deliver this kind of, uh, you know, uh, value to our patients and families, because the genie is out of the bottle. We're not going to be able to put this back and say, well, telehealth only works during pandemic. It doesn't work during regular business. Mm-hmm. That's not going to happen. I think what you're going to see is uh, most organizations now pivoting to some model, whether it's 20% or 30% or something that, it, that they're comfortable with, where outpatient visits are going to have, happen through telehealth. Maybe it's pre or post-surgical in a consultation. Maybe it's just well visit. Maybe lots of other ways that telehealth can be used to engage and actually uh, facilitate better interaction in, you know, with, our, with our consumers and patients. It can also reduce the time, the travel time, the, the you know, time it takes to see those patients in many cases in specialized services. Where you are seeing a huge explosion in this country with telehealth is behavioral health. You know, that was a great need of behavioral health and people had to wait long time to be able to see that. You know, if you think about the opiate crisis and all that, telehealth has facilitated that and, and COVID has assisted us. So I do think that you're going to see pretty much every organization in this country, healthcare organization has, has some level of adoption with telehealth uh, and it is going to continue to grow. I think you're going to see the payer models slowly uh, start accepting the payment. You know, the government has made some inroad during the COVID, but I think you're going to see more and more payers see this. You know, there are payers that still say it it's costly because patients see that through telehealth and then they have to be referred back to the primary care. But there are ways to uh, create avenues that uh, make this a viable solution for our consumers uh, where they have better ex- experience. And also surveys show that 99% of the people that are seen in telehealth, they're more satisfied with the experience than they are when they come for in-person visits. Mm-hmm. So maybe I'll call on Tanya next, uh, making that transition, Tanya, from a provider to the plan side of the healthcare industry. How do you all on the plan side view not only telehealth, but potentially, you know, the future of remote from home hospital visits? I think that's, that's a a really interesting question, Rob, you know, moving over to the, you know, focus on the payer side, the objectives of the payers are really very similar and almost the same um, as those on the provider side. So really that focus on quadruple aim, that focus on health and wellness and uh, population health, that focus on reducing reducing the cost of care. And we, hey, Haroon, Blue Cross Blue Shield is not one of those <laughs> that is behind the curve, by the, by the way, in, in this respect. Um, and so really looking to virtual health uh, to, to drive and really enhance uh, the experience uh, with, with those consumers and leverage that as a way to be proactive uh, with respect to prevention. So as we know in certain disease states with, or whether that be asthma or that is you know, diabetes or congestive heart, heart failure, uh, prevention and engagement is, is really uh, critical to the uh, specific outcomes of those, uh, those co- cohorts. And so we are uh, leveraging virtual health, we, we leverage 
uh, a vendor to provide provide those services. And we've integrated that with uh, we, we've integrated that as options with respect to uh, how we uh, define our benefit plans, as well as we've integrated into uh, primary care and behavioral health. So we've got a pretty unique program uh, at Blue Cross Blue Shield that combines uh, the in-person care of uh, the primary care with uh, behavioral health and um, the option to uh, provide virtual health and, and are continuing to evolve that. One of the things that we see as critical is um, whether you're a payer or a provider or uh, you know an integrated delivery network, healthcare is very siloed and there is no one aspect of that those care delivery models that contains all of the information um, that is needed to best care for those patients. So we're expanding our model to be more of a more personalized, as well as to engage the various aspects or the entire continuum um, of how care is being delivered through partnerships with the, the IDNs, as well as, um, you know, local uh, care providers of, of various types of services. And I think it's the combination of all of those things, leveraging the data and insights that comes out of that and engaging the patients, uh, the patients slash members, which happen to be the same people um, in ways that facilitate uh, that uh, better care delivery overall. Great, Dr. Heider is a physician leader in this space. Where do you see for the provider community, uh, where do we rest on the IT continuum to having the tools necessary to manage patients in this different way, you know, either again, uh, having a patient, you know, rather than coming into an inpatient facility, being able to monitor them at home or for outlying facilities, having an ICU that's maybe um, at the mothership hospital, but managing patients in an outlying facility through technology. Where do you see us in the adoption of those different ways of managing patients? Yeah, no, that's a great question. And just, you know, commenting on my comments of my colleagues, I totally agree. And I think Harun, you know, you make it sort of a say an example, you know, patients are, are used to this type of technology. You have an iPhone, you know, you expect everything to happen virtually now, just like banking. And um, I think where healthcare is evolving right now is really starting to understand how to apply the population health framework to the digital capabilities that are available. So just maybe two seconds on sort of what does it mean to have a population health framework? You know, about 10 years ago, population health was this sort of vague, amorphous thing that people didn't really understand. Um, but I think what we've evolved over the past 10 years, and it's, it's really even evolving beyond this now, but when we think about a population, it simply is breaking them, breaking a, a, a large cohort into smaller cohorts, into smaller groups. And, and really, you can think of it in four ways. At, at the very base or bottom is you're really healthy and well. These are people who have not been diagnosed with any specific disease who are generally healthy, who are generally well, and wish to stay that way. Um, and that's, that's really the goal of that specific uh, cohort or bucket of, of patients. The next level up from that are those which we would call rising risk. These are folks who, um, whose body mass index is increasing, whose sugars might be going up, but they don't exactly qualify for diabetes, whose blood pressure is not quite normal, but not fully abnormal. So they're in a risk category that's going in the wrong direction, but they're not formally meeting the criteria of a specific disease. Um, that's another sort of secondary bucket that needs a, a different approach and a, and a different way to treat them. The third bucket is really the chronic disease management folks. These are folks who have been diagnosed formally with a specific one or more diseases, high blood pressure, high cholesterol, COPD, um, diabetes, atrial fibrillation, lots of them. Um, and those folks are treated differently than, than, than the other two. And then the final grouping is really the sort of sickest of the six or the highest utilizers. And these are folks with multiple comorbid diseases who are falling off the curve and who need specific attention. And so that's, if you think about that as sort of a pyramid, um, you know, the folks at the top utilize about 50% of the healthcare, the 20% at the top utilize about 50% of the healthcare expenditures. So there is a significant push to try to reduce, um, you know, negative out outcomes and improve cost and utilization. So we know that, and that's really how pop health folks have been thinking about this for the past 10 years. Digital capabilities now 
are an extension of care delivery. So we think about within a rising risk population, what are the tools that we can apply to those folks to be able to get a handle uh, on their health? Um, if, I'm, if I'm understanding what someone's weight is doing, who, hey, I suspect you, know, you come in to see me in the office or a televisit, you know, you're not kind of headed in the right direction. What are the tools that I can augment my care with so I can get more information in more real time to be able to affect their course of care and keep them uh, from getting to that next level up, that, that chronic disease. I, I'd like to actually push them down into the healthy and well population. So I think as we're thinking about this from the healthcare clinical perspective, we're looking at these different strata of the population. We're thinking about specific diseases, whether it's cancer or, or cardiac disease or pulmonary disease. And within those, those different categories, what are the specific diseases that best qualify for these types of capabilities? Um, because part of the education to the public and managing expectations is that sort of virtual care and telehealth isn't the answer for everything. Um, you know, if, if someone's got to make a difficult diagnosis and, and tell someone they've got cancer, that's a hard thing to do virtually. Um, there are certain types of conversations and events that need to happen in person, but there's a lot of things that don't. So as we start to think about it, we're trying to understand the different disease threads that uh, we can apply the right digital capabilities to, to bring the best outcome, the best, the best clinical outcome uh, with the best patient satisfaction as well. We, 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 you know, it's really critical to do that. I think behavioral health is a great example of where the pandemic sort of pushed us into that space. It wasn't really very prevalent, but now that we're there, people are realizing, you know, behavioral health virtually works really well for most people, um, but not for everybody. And I think that's kind of where we're in a state of right now. Um, where we're evolving to is the, the, the place after population health is really precision medicine. And it's just starting to say, now we've thought about people in four different buckets. How do we actually take that and understand enough about a person to know what exactly to do to both diagnostic and therapeutic wise. Um, so we can provide targeted therapy digitally or otherwise uh, so that uh, you know, we're, we're specifically addressing their needs versus lumping them into a, a bucket of four. Um, and I think that's really where the next, the next uh, five to 10 years is gonna take us into that, that area. Mm -hmm. So you know, building on that concept, uh, as we look at trying to address the cost and quality issues that we see in the healthcare industry, leaders are looking to, you all as the IT strategic leaders, uh, to define what are the business intelligence and data analytic tools to best take all this new data we're having now on patients and put in place better models of care. Maybe I'll start with you, Tanya. From a payer perspective, with all the information you have, claims data, et cetera, on patients, where do you see us in that evolution of being able to impact the patient's care through the data that we have? Oh, yeah, for sure. Rob, I think this is, this is an area that um, we have the most opportunity in uh, with respect to healthcare and really establishing the, those dis uh, distributed architecture um, across not only, not only internally to our organizations, but externally to really pull in the type of information, leverage artificial intelligence and machine learning to take that information and to drive insights. So Mike just talked a bit about you know, precision, precision medicine. Uh, I talked a little bit about personalization, bringing those things together to be very precise and prescriptive around the actions that we need to take, um, not only with the individuals and their particular care um, and helping to drive those outcomes, but what do we need to do more systemically? What kind of programs do we need to put in place? What kind of prevention mechanisms do we need to put in place? Um, what kind of experience do we want to create? And ultimately, strategically, how, how do we evolve as an organization uh, to really accelerate uh, meeting those goals? I think this area around data and analytics has by far um, the most promise, uh, particularly with connected devices, um, you know, connect more connected infrastructure, whether that be with social media, whether that be with other services, whether that be with you know, um, you know, your traditional health health systems, 
I think there's a lot of great work going on, even in the genomic space, right? Where, you know, with a click of a button or a, a flip of the toggle, you can share your genetic information and get feedback around your health status blended with other information that is held uh, simply on your iWatch um, or your iPhone. And so I think that is the that is the promise and evolution. And I think that's going to explode over the next five years, three to five years, quite frankly. So Dr. Heider, as you look at accountable care entities and other entities involved in value-based care, trying to utilize this data to impact cost and quality, how far along do you see us in that uh, progression? Yeah, it's definitely a journey. And I think, you know, many people are in different places. Um, I think those who do it well, are very, and I, so I'll take everything Tanya just said, and she's 100% correct. And the only thing I'll add to it is to say that it needs to be purpose built, right? So the concept of bring it all in, let's bring all the data in and we'll figure out what to do with it, that doesn't work. And, and organizations that try that approach often fail because it's like going to Home Depot and just buying everything to build a house, <laughs> right? You, you really need to be very purpose built for what you're doing. So the, the organizations that execute well in the pop health space are very specific around a disease outcome that has a known ROI to it. And, and if, if, if you approach it from that perspective to say, okay, what do I need now to execute well in, for this specific disease? What are the data pieces that I'm going to need to bring in from all these different sources? Um, if you take it from that approach, you, you now know what your costs associated are, but you know what your value is. And you can build off that iteratively. So pop health is really one disease at a time. And um, those who aggregate data and normalize it and be able to serve it up in ways that make sense specific to disease states uh, are the ones that are, are succeeding. And I think, you know, the big IDNs like, you know, Kaiser and Geisinger, they're, they're doing it very well, Oshner, um, because you hear them talking not about, not about their big data platforms, but about their disease outcomes and the specific areas that they're focused on. So Haroon is the chief information officer for a pediatric health system. How is the evolution of data analytics impacting that population? Well, I, I can tell you, I, I think the, what I see in this industry is that most organization is data rich and information poor. They have significant amount of raw data. Everything we do spits out some level of data. You know, I mean, you name it, we have it, mountains of data but we don't have information that is meaningful for those data. And we're behind in this industry, in my opinion, in terms of analytics journey and business intelligence to do the things that we need to do to make them more meaningful, you know, to make it more where a clinician can have it at their fingertips to be able to make decisions readily. We have a lot of evolution that is still needs to happen. And I think part of that evolution that you're going to see, you know, uh, as uh, Tanya and talked about, Michael, is that we need to infuse more artificial intelligence and machine language into this digital, uh, in, a, uh, in the digital component of data analytics and data sharing. It's something we haven't done as much. You know, when you look at uh, on the adult side or even on the pediatric side, you know, to do predictive analytics and, and you know we're only doing eight or 10 or maybe 15 of those things. We need to be doing more than that. We need to be able to understand things better. I tell this all the time. I was like, you know, my car doesn't tell me I ran out of gas after I ran out of gas. It's giving me a warning at a quarter mile, you know, quarter tank saying, look, you're going to, you need to fill your gas or you're going to have a, an adverse impact. We need to become like that with data to be able to arm our clinicians and our leaders to be able to make decisions that are informative based on the data that we have. And this is a journey that healthcare has had for quite some time. You know, you've heard of big data, all this different initiative, but I think we're still behind significantly compared to that of other industries. The health plans are a little bit better off because they've been at it a lot faster than we have because they've been keeping track of this. Google, Amazon, they know more about us than we do sometimes, you know? So we need to start thinking outside the box around how we take this data to be able to address, you know, our population, our community, and then also share that data among us. That's been the other challenges we do. You know, we are so dependent on our healthcare uh, EMRs 
to do this data sharing through HIEs or, or through other mechanisms. But, you know, we still struggle to be able to give patients the, the kind of data they need or clinicians the data they need when they travel outside their, their home region, you know, and so the in information blocking and others are going to help. But, you know, there's that whole component of HIPAA and PHI and one hand is saying, you know, you have to really protect that data. And there's also that component, you've got to share that data. So it, it's a double-edged sword. You have to do this in a mechanism that's more balanced. But I do think that healthcare is significantly behind on this. There are some organizations that have done some good things, but we need to do more and we need to inject more machine language and other kind of things that's going to allow us to become very proactive in managing care and changing the future of medicine. Mm-hmm. And I think your point, um, I just want to add r- real quick to something that Haroon said um, around data and data sharing. I think that interoperability between systems, both internally and externally, is is incredible, is very critical. Um, and you see some of the industry leaders uh, and system um, vendors like Epic and Cerner and, and those starting to address that particular aspect. You know, they're adding machine learning type of capabilities and, and artificial intelligence and looking, looking for more ways to connect, not only um, just from a health system and provider standpoint, but connecting payers and providers and services and, and uh, those types of capabilities. And, and as I mentioned earlier, I think that will uh, accelerate uh, over time here. And if I can add to that, because Tanya's, uh, and you know, traditionally, we've always been very good about knowing what the patient's uh, conditions are when they come into the walls of the hospital, you know, but we don't know enough about them, the social determinants of all the conditions and all when they leave the hospital, when they leave the clinic. And this is why data is so important for us to manage that care in the future, because we need to know all the social determinants that's really going up. You can't tell a person, you know, to smoke, uh, quit smoking if they're in a house full of people that are all smoking, right? So you have to understand the climate and, and what the background is to be able to understand how to address those challenges that come with it uh, from a social determinant. So data is very much front and center. We need to do more of this in the healthcare and, and really uh, do some rapid growth to be able to address the future care that we need. COVID is a classic example. Look how we struggle to understand who was positive, who was not positive. You know, where where are all the beds available? You know, that has taught a lot from a state level, from a federal level, the need for data interoperability to address this kind of pandemic. Great points. So next, uh, I'll turn it over to Emily uh, to address digital health. Sure. So, and you all have been talking um, about the huge volume of data that's out there. I'm going to kind of drill down into um, digital health and and devices in particular. Um, and I'm interested in, you know, what do you include as, you know, a part of devices? We often think of wearables and we've mentioned smartphones, smart watches. Um, how do you see that as, you know, how helpful is that data collection? Um, how are you, what are you seeing used now? What do you see prospectively as a place to go? Um, and I'll start with Dr. Heider, maybe, um, to see if you can give us some insights on that. Yeah, no, that's, it's a big, big topic for sure. You know, I think at the basic level, you are right. We are sort of at the wearable sort of level right now where you've got basics like heart rate, temperature, O2 sat, uh, blood pressure starting to get looked at for sure, where you've got remote blood pressure monitoring, heart rhythm. Uh, the Apple Watch can now diagnose whether or not you're in atrial fibrillation. You can get an EKG off your Apple Watch. Um, there's all kinds of gadgets out there, nose scopes, throat scopes, ear scopes. Um, we're measuring things like mobility and sleep. Folks are looking at EEG and brainwave analysis. Uh, sleep apnea can be diagnosed at home now. Um, you know, I think the evolution, it, it gets even more exciting. Uh, facial appearance, your mood, um, your risk of fall, your, your, your sweat level, um, all of these types of things, you know, blood sugar is coming online in the next uh, couple of years, being able to non-invasively measure glucose um, from a smartwatch. So I think uh, all of these capabilities and more, especially as Harun talked about sort of that AI ML 
uh, where we can now take this and start to make predictions based on um, all of this data that's streaming in. I think when you combine that with other types of data that uh, folks have been talking about, social determinants, and even apps. I mean, I, I consider an app where it's asking me, what did I eat today? Did I take my medications? Uh, interactive type of um, applications with you and your phone, whether it's passive or active, all of that now um, is available. And uh, I think it, it really feeds into the diagnostic components of many, many types of diseases. And so I think each disease is gonna have certain requirements for, diagno you know, for diagnostic elements. I think the evolution then becomes into therapeutics, right? So we've got this information, we know something is going to happen. What can we do digitally or virtually to help mitigate that? Um, and those could be all kinds of robotic type things and, and who knows what uh, inventors and engineers can dream of. But I think ultimately the, the therapeutic arm is going to be an explosion of, uh, of technology you know, in the future. So, and Tanya, from a payer perspective, how do you see devices playing into how you manage the members, how you how you um, improve on health, and um, you know, addressing it from your perspective? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, some of the areas that you know the payers are focused on is really filling some of those gaps and providing options and alternatives. Uh, to help in, enhance uh, care and help enhance diagnostics. So for example, um, and creating incentives, for example, for a, from a fitness standpoint, using the iWatch or some type of, of device to monitor fitness and, and activity, um, sharing that type of information um, and engaging with the, the providers, providing those types of capabilities as benefits. So as we look at um, the different type of uh, clients that we have uh, in in our organization, really looking at okay, what are the what is the right mix of capabilities and and technologies that they need in order to help facilitate health, uh, whether that be with us directly through care management or whether that be with their with their provider, um, which I think is where most of the you know the care is is actually managed. Um, I did want to comment um, because one of the things that you had asked about was where, where do we see the, the, the technologies um, going? When you look at all of the, you know, the, the span of the different types of capabilities and devices, um, that, is, that is also evolving. So we, we see apps and we see different types of um, connected devices. Those devices, I think, over time um, will become more and more passive. So let leveraging geospatial um, type information and, and providing ways to influence the behaviors of, of consumers based on where they are in space and time and the activities, um, the activities that they're doing. So I, I see some of those things coming down the line um, in future years. And then uh, the other thing that, that I'm starting to see spring up uh, with respect to that is um, those types of capabilities actually starting to go more internal than external. So today we use like I we use a you know our iPhones or um, you know watches and external devices. And there's a lot of research and um, innovation dollars going into how to make that more passive, how to leverage internal biology and and devices and mechanisms. Um, to provide that type of information in, uh, and feedback as well. So I thought that was interesting. One of the things that um, Dr. Heider and I have um, looked at is really around, you know, voice analysis and how voice analysis connects to health and behavior and, and things like that. So, you know, in your day-to-day -day activities by, you know, simply having a conversation, analysis can be taking place about your health. So, there's a lot of uh, research and innovation that's going into that space. Thank you. And, and Haroon, do you have anything to add uh, regarding devices and digital health, particularly from the perspective of the special patient population that you serve? Yeah, I think if you look at the industry, um, wearables are all around us. Most each and every one of us have probably have some level of wearables that we use on our day-to-day -day life to manage, you know, 
And the reason we're doing that is because we are trying to take charge of our own healthcare. You know, we, we want to be, uh, you know, it, it, it's convenient, first of all, it's a consumer preference, but it's also creating an experience. And so if you look at the Huron, I think it was, Huron did a, um, a study in 2021, where they found that almost 31% of, of the patients that were using uh, wearables were sharing data with their providers uh, from those wearables, and another 48% or so are willing to do so and going forward. Now, our EMRs are not yet tweaked to handle all that data, which is another limitation. Uh, you know, so because it, we would get bombarded with all this data and we wouldn't have, we don't have the resources to be able to address that. But I do think that we will find a sweet spot as we grow to take and ingest that data and put it into some sort of a uh, plan in, in the organization where a provider or even our systems can react appropriately when they see elevations or when they see a uh, opportunity for which we need to intervene. So I do think you're going to see that. I mean, there's more and more of this coming out. And what you're seeing with the peripherals is that uh, while we do great job of taking care of it, is all of those disruptors that are coming into our industries because they believe there is, um, uh, whether it's a monetary gain or market share or whatever, you know, they have the peripheral and where we are not as good at that, where patients can take self-control. And that's why you are seeing all this, you know, uh, items coming into the market every day in the new gadgets. I mean, there's, you know, digital socks, digital belt, digital pants. I, I don't know why you would need a digital pan, but, you know, it's there. You know? And, and uh, uh, you know, wearables, you know, Google Glass. And people have this understanding that these disruptors that are coming into this industry doesn't understand healthcare. And that's not true. They've been in healthcare for 20 plus years. You know, Google Glass, look at that. They've been in there. They learned, they failed, they learned. And, you know, and so they're learning as they go to see where there are opportunities in healthcare to bring about those kind of technology that engages the patient, creates their personalized consumer uh, preferences and allows them to take charge. So I think you're going to see more uh, infusion into this. And I think um, more of this is going to interconnect and eventually be uh, hopefully seamless at some day uh, with our electronic health record to appropriately take that care that's needed, uh, you know, uh, real time and proactive. Thank you. Thank you so much. And thanks to all three of you for these, these great insights that you're sharing. I think it's, you know, tremendously helpful to our audience to, to have these perspectives. Um, and as we're closing out, uh, one of the things that is helpful for the lawyers who work with you folks is to understand what your needs are and to understand how legal counsel can best support you. So, you know, as some, some closing thoughts, um, I wanted to see from, from your perspective as CIOs and um, as inside the industry, what can legal do uh, to be a good partner and to support you? Um, and Haroon, why don't we start with you? Oh, the first thing I would say, keep us out of trouble, you know, so, <laughs> you know because, uh, you know, we have uh, very engaging clinicians and they're all very well intended, but sometimes they don't understand that a simple, well, you know, because there are a lot of vendors that are recognizing that uh, there are a lot of um, cybersecurity requirements to do business with our, our organization. And we have, to, we have to do that because we have to protect it. So they've come up with this new ways of you know, plug and play. You don't need IT for it. And they realize that when they plug it in, it's not playing because you know, <laughs> it, it is in the cloud. And, and as a result, you know, they are not recognizing that sending that data to the cloud is now available to everyone. So I think that's why it's so important for our attorneys. And I, I work real close with our legal team to make sure that our contracts have the appropriate conflict of interest addressed. You know, they, they follow state laws, uh, you know, uh, their uh, indemnifications, cyber liabilities, all of those. So it protects us and it protects the vendor against any challenges that may come about. But we do look at them often and we are in a locked in partnership to make sure that everything do we do IT is following those rules and you know keeping us out of trouble. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Yes, a lot of risk areas to be on the lookout for. Um, Tanya, do you have anything to add? Uh, advice for legal counsel on being good partners? 
Yeah, absolutely. Um, and, and I would, I would really focus in two areas. One is anticipation, right? So anticipating some of the things that are coming down the, the line and, and helping us to really proactively navigate those. Um, there's a lot of landmines in technology, especially when, especially when the technology is so dis, uh, distributed. Um, you know, laws and regulations are changing around who can share what information with who. Um, and there's a lot of pitfalls in, uh, and uh, unanticipated uh, consequences uh, as a result of that, that I don't feel have been thought through. So, you know, really bringing a legal perspective to help organizations anticipate those potential fit pitfalls and then, of course, navigate them. And the second is really, you know, um, technology um, and digital capabilities are everywhere. And that's, that's, that's not going to change. It's only going to accelerate and increase. Um, so looking at ways to expand the technology knowledge um, and discipline within, not just with the legal specialists that focus in technology, but really um, finding ways to distribute and expand that knowledge across uh, the legal uh, industry as a whole, because there is no aspect of um, there's no aspect that isn't uh, affected by technology or or implications associated with technology. So I think, you know, in much uh, the same way that really um, medical schools had to start to incorporate digital knowledge and leveraging technology as part of their curriculum. I think the same needs to happen in the legal space. That makes sense. And, you know, when it comes to anticipating, I think this podcast is going to be tremendously helpful um, for the legal field uh, in understanding where you guys, you know, as experts in the field, see things going. Mm -hmm. um, and Dr. Heider, do we have anything from you, anything to add about uh, what, our, what our legal counsel can do to be good partners, uh, to be most helpful? Yeah, I think um, in addition to, to what my colleagues have talked about, you know, the, the 21st Century Cures Act was uh, brought in last year, and, and that really sort of brought, you know, the mandate of immediate data sharing with patients, everything out of the EMR in real time as it's happening inpatient and outpatient. And I, I think the intentions are good intentions. And I think, you know, folks were thinking it's about patient engagement, it's about patient empowerment. But the reality is that the EMR is, is not for patients, really. It's, it's really for other clinicians and, and for, for coding and other folks to understand what's happening from a clinical perspective. It's typically notes are not written in ways that, that average people can digest the information. And there's a lot of data, raw data within those EMRs that puts a lot of unclear risks out there for providers, clinicians, um, you know, a lot of legal uh, potential concerns that, that, that can surface from that. And, and you know, it, it is learning about a cancer diagnosis from, you know, a pathology report online the best way for a patient to really digest these things? It's not. I mean, the art of medicine is, that is really the interpretation of the data and in, in a, in a conversation with the patient and digesting it in the context of what's going on with that patient. And the EMR doesn't do that. So, I think it's having some awareness that we've opened this box and there's an extreme amount of data out there, but it's not really, you know, information that's readily digestible for, for patients. And so to help navigate uh, those, those areas with us, I think is, is something for sure that uh, many of my colleagues are talking about and, and would absolutely seek your help. Emily, the only other thing I would add with the uh, infusion of all this telehealth, there's going to be a lot of opportunities there as well to make sure that providers don't get themselves, uh, even though it's been around for a while, you know, there's interstate rules, there's the, you know, all kinds of other rules that are coming that allows you to have parity laws between interstate to do telehealth and put you up to distribute license for nurses and doctors. I think those are all things that we need to get better counsel on how best to approach that because we're going to have people coming into our territory to do telehealth and we're going to have the opportunity to do it somewhere else but you mm -hmm. know we need to understand the governing laws and how to address those 
Right, and just one more add um, around data and analytics. So with the proliferation of artificial intelligence and machine learning, uh, as wonderful as that can be in terms of driving insights, it it also has pitfalls and and inherent challenges um, that, I mean, I I think all of you have probably uh, seen in the news some of the some of the, the challenges that organizations have faced by leveraging information that has come out of some of those, those AI models. And so really navigating that space uh, as well is, is critically important as, as that continues to expand. And I think I'll add one last one. I know we're short on time. Given the current climate, and we addressed this earlier where staffing has become scarce, we're now looking for stats. Uh, we have staff now residing in multiple states. So when you look at that, not every organization is aware of what the labor laws are in those states for, and the ramifications of having, you know, because some states may say you can have up to three, but after that you have to have certain things, certain presence, certain, you know, you have to treat them differently. You know, so I think you're going to see healthcare needing to understand that better from a legal counsel as to what what is available and what can be done as staff are dis, you know dispersed over the entire country and you know supporting a healthcare because it's no longer the traditional model of everybody in the same city. Great points. So on behalf of our membership of HLA, Haroon, Tanya, Dr. Hyder, we really want to thank you for sharing your thoughts today. Uh, a lot of thought-provoking things that really will help us as we look to the future. As I've seen you all interact with your organizations, you've built very sophisticated IT structures. You've provided your providers with new capabilities. And ultimately, we've seen patients benefit from your hard work. So we really want to thank each of you for that and for all that you've done uh, in the healthcare industry. So on behalf of HLA, thanks again for being with us today. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to subscribe to AHLA Speaking of Health Law wherever you get your podcasts. To learn more about AHLA and the educational resources available to the health law community, visit AmericanHealthLaw.org.